Welcome to the Natural History Cupboard. Come on in. And welcome back to the Natural History Cupboard podcast, the place where the weird and wonderful parts of the natural world come together. I'm your host, Gareth, and with me as always are my co-hosts, Drew. Say hi. Oh, hi. Hi. What have you been up to this week? Usual stuff. I've been, you know, going to work, earning money, coming home, sitting Spending on my own. money. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> no, trying not to. I did have a, a red deer ran out in front of me whilst I was on my way to work the other That's day. Right. Have you been male. hearing them in the mornings, Drew? No, I have not. I work in a, a valley, basically, and if mm. you sort of head yourself down towards the sea, you can, I was told, hear them. I was just way. wondering, because you can hear them from your house. From my house? Well, you've, been, you uh, sit- you've, been, you've been to my house and listened <laughs> well, to them. I live... <laughs> I live literally down the road from you. I don't know if well, you know that. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> like Are you just sitting outside walk. his window? <laughs> no, you can hear them every uh, morning and most, most evenings at the moment as they come into rut. You can hear them roaring on the uh, far hill. Um, so if you were to look pretty much straight down the valley from your house, that's where they yeah. are. Okay. You can hear them quite quite clearly. Uh, we I hear owls, owls quite often, but I haven't heard, I haven't heard them rutting. I hear the owls at night. Yeah. I think he's actually the red deer, Drew. He's sitting underneath your window. Yeah, yeah. Making red deer sounds. Yeah, classic. <laughs> yeah, rutting <laughs> underneath my window. <laughs> Stop rutting underneath my window, guess out. Like uh, a yeah. moo um, but, crossed with a roar. Yeah. But no, apart from that, I mean, not not very much for me. However, I did want to do a quick social media update for you. Uh, oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah, because, uh, you know, sometimes I like to scour social media and find funny comments that irritate me and make me laugh at the same time um <laughs> you haven't I, been picking I... any twitter fights have you no 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 no, no. It's, this was on facebook i saw a comment from sharon it's a genuine yeah. comment who said assuredly that mammals cannot digest insects and doing so uh, gives them parasites <laughs> uh, so everything that we know and that i know that is just i think has just been put into question what have xenathra been eating all this time well, I mean, they've all been getting parasites and dying because they shouldn't be eating insects. <laughs> no mammal can digest insects. But I mean, this new science is going to affect my creature feature because it, well, we thought it was an insect eater. Who even knows anymore? Well, uh, I mean, but, yeah. Is it like Facebook the whale shark? It's just eating tacos, burritos, and sideways baguettes, and Hawaiian yeah. pizzas. Yeah. I do, I do like i do say the word like here probably wrongly but social media gives people real confidence to spout just <laughs> absolute absolute bull to be like yeah. yes this is definitely this is a fact well um, okay. forget all that time that you know that we put into fact checking any any tweet or or any sort of facebook or, or whatever post that we put out and spend ages just making sure that it is accurate and and uh, completely there's no, point. no there's, there's no, no point. point. We're just, no. I'm just gonna misinformation goes further. Yep, be far more interesting. It's like one of those. I bet you've never seen a baby platypus picture, and it's a cuddly toy. You know. Oh yeah, yeah, with the massive eyes. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh, yeah. Yeah. Well, mm. there you go. Mm. And Aaron, what have you been up to? Well, not not actually all that much in my spare time. I'm getting used to. New behavioural habits. <laughs> but rutting, actually, rutting outside my window. Rutting under his window. <laughs> Honestly, it's getting it's getting really, you know, borderline weird. 
On the uh, on the topic of fact finding and fact checking, sometimes it slips through the cracks. And to that end, I want to make an amendment to, I think it was the answer to the email last week, uh, where I said, well, it's, it doesn't change anything about SeaWorld. Oh, it, right. it actually changes about the bit that I said about Hollywood. So the two, the two movies, Finding Nemo and Finding Dory, have mm. led to a sharp increase in fish poaching for the pet trade. I've been looking into something that was related, but not actually that, and accidentally stumbled upon something that was saying that it actually it didn't lead to a sharp rise in it, and that's actually not true. So I looked into that a little bit further. I went into one of those wonder holes uh, trying <laughs> to get to the bottom of this because I thought, well, this is against what I've uh, thought. And like that's, all intelligent absurd, people... Yeah. Like when you find new evidence, you you go in and look at it, and it turns out that actually my original source it was about the films causing an increase in in poaching for the pet trade is actually incorrect. And I didn't just get this from one source. I went once I found this, I went around to other sources. Uh, one of which is Fizz, the online Fizz.org no. science uh, web website, and found out that it very much is is not true. Uh, so I just wanted to amend no. that. The other thing I wanted to say, actually, Gareth, is in the creature feature, you asked me, was there whale sharks yeah. in Saudi Arabia? To which I said, when I when I was looking into this, I didn't find any information on it. The reason why I didn't find any information on whale sharks in Saudi Arabia is because there aren't any whale sharks in Saudi Arabia. If I yeah. could just pull up the list, I can tell you exact not not the collections, but I can tell you where... I could have sworn that there were some or some sort of promotional thing that they put out or no plan to have one or there's probably someone who planned that one i'd imagine there's uh well they might plan to get them in i guess but yeah but at the moment as it stands there are three in japanese aquariums there's one in a taiwanese aquarium and then there's that one in uh georgia aquarium in atlanta georgia usa mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. so yeah that's where your your five whale shark collections are so yeah just wanted to make two amendments to to last week well, that makes the stud book uh, for those rather easy. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> to be honest, I don't, I don't think there's a stud book. I think at the moment they're not. It's a piece of paper. <laughs> yeah, well, yeah, it would be just five sharks on it, or five, five we've, places. We've gone past. On. We've gone past that. Other, we all online database. The uh, it's not called Zims anymore, is it? It's species species three sixty, yeah. and yeah, yeah. no one else but zookeepers will understand that reference. No. But it used Basically, to be called ISIS. Yes, which I yeah. thought was well, their best marketing decision they'd ever made about well, the exact I think, time as well. Uh, oh, was it not before the? No, it was the, just the about other the ISIS. same time. Just about the other side, the time that the other ISIS sort of started up. They it were, stood for like individual, like oh, something. It like, was uh, something. individual species identification system. It's or happened. Was it something to do with itinerary. Yeah, yeah, okay, yeah, or in, in, inventory or something like yeah. that. But yeah. Conservation yeah. and and violence have clashed twice in in my lifetime. You, it start it all started back in the Attitude Era when WWF were against the <laughs> WWF for the name. Uh, but a panda took a steel chair to the Undertaker's head, and that's why WWF <laughs> is now called WWE. The the conservation. Charity I don't know is who still the Undertaker WWE. is, but he sounds like a right little wimp. He, if, you got taken, if you got taken out, he's by a, panda. a right laugh. <laughs> <laughs> I am um... not more. Not not not. Not uh, morbid at all. <laughs> if I if I remember correctly, I believe Species Three Hundred and Sixty, when they were called ISIS, did get hacked several times by 
like anonymous and that thinking it was, I think they did thinking yeah, it was that. the terrorist group not the zoo identification system so, yeah. so uh, yeah just have correct branding just for a little bit of background for people who aren't zookeepers wondering what we're talking about so it was originally called isis which stood for the international species information system Okay, there you go. It, yeah. It then became Zim's Species 360. Or uh, it, it was, it was Species Zim's 360. It was, that, it was Zim's yeah. before, yeah. It's now Species 360. What it is, is basically a huge database that zoos and, and other organizations have access to, to basically log information about the animals that they hold in their collections. Uh, from there, stud bookkeepers and also vets as well, all sorts of, of animal care professionals can get involved in where these animals are and kind of make like decisions like that would benefit not just the individual's life, but the captive population's life and the wild population's life. It's, it, it, it's very good. Well, it's actually, it is. Well, it's, no, no, it's, no, no, sorry. It's not it's the most not user friendly thing, but it's a very good concept. Uh, I'm yeah. going to point this out now. It was very good for you two because you had large mammals. <laughs> If you, worked with, if you worked with, all right, you had at least mammals that were wrecking. You had mammals. If you worked with invertebrates, half your species didn't even exist on there and they didn't even want to know about you. So, you know, it's fine if you're working with one of five species of big cat or something. But if you want to try and put in an individual species of stick insect, you have got no chance. Stick in the description of this. Uh of this podcast when I share it on the zookeeper groups. <laughs> in this episode, Gareth Slate's Zims or Species And you know what? It never worked well on your phone and I hate no, it. No, it was not user-friendly on your phone at all. And <laughs> they did. They decided they weren't going to bring out a mobile version because they were doing something in Asia instead yep. that was yep. more, I suppose it was more lucrative for the company that did the website. So oh. Anyway, <laughs> we've, yeah, uh, we've dealt with... Shall we move on? We've delved deep there. Deep We've, into uh, the zookeeping history yes. of our of our lives there. Can I can I just say what the um the two well one one bit of wildlife uh, encounter I had this last week was a tawny owl basically sitting eye height as I walked around a corner and it saw me I saw it and it went oh and flew off. I thought we were so getting that... into a wurzel song then. <laughs> <laughs> yes, you did have a big <laughs> stick, did you? Oh uh, yeah, no, uh, yeah, <laughs> <laughs> and we drank some cider. And um, the other one's not so much wildlife based, but it was just nice actually coming out. Well, I hate going to work in the dark. I think it's a, it's so depressing. But this morning there were no clouds around and it was really starry over where I am. And it was just nice looking up and seeing all the different constellations. Oh, you don't cool. often get a good cloudless morning or something like that. You always, you know, it's usually a dreary, cloudy morning. But, yeah. um, or heavily polluted, depending on where you are. Yeah. Well, yeah. You can't see it. Yeah. I mean, there's one thing to be said, at least the area where I am is is right on the edge of of the the town. So it's uh, it's not as much light polluted as as it could be. But yeah, it's quite nice to to sit there and look at the look at the stars. Not technically natural history, I suppose, but um, it's sort of still quite nice. Astronomy is astronomy is is natural history, I suppose. It's one of the natural history sciences. Anyway, let's move on from that. And we'll plunge into the news, shall we? It's the news! Right, well, we're into this week's news. I'm going to start things off 
with an article that has come from ABC News Australia, which it's it's not so much a news article, but it's quite a nice thought piece that they put out. This is the out. news. This is the news. It's more of a more of a thought piece uh, for it, but it's okay. uh, it's entitled David Flay's four month expedition into the wilds of Tasmania in a bid to save the thylacine from extinction. <laughs> this is this no, okay. this is not a recent thing. This is oh, this is it's a so, recounting oh, right. of it. No, there's not so someone out in Tasmania doing this at the moment. I mean, there probably the extinct is. animal from extinction. Yeah. So this this happened um, during 1945. So uh, it's, okay. it's uh, basically it's come from his son Stephen, who recalls being a three year old in one of these camps in the middle of uh, the Tasmanian wilderness. I looking... don't remember a single thing when I was three. <laughs> well, there you go. I mean, I, 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 yeah, no, I can't think. But I, anyway, I anyway, back to this. It's actually quite yeah, yeah, a nice. Okay. It's quite a nice, but also sad article. Sorry, sorry. We know what's we know what's coming. We know what's coming. Hmm. So, um, there's a greater chance thylacines, known as Tasmanian tigers, could have been saved from extinction if the pleas of a renowned naturalist, David Flay, had been heard. His son has said one of his earliest memories is of his father's four-month search for a pair of thylacines, starting in November 1945, when Stephen was just three years old. His father had lobbied authorities unsuccessfully to protect the species and was bitterly disappointed when he was unable to find a breeding pair despite evidence of the animal's existence in the area. Now in his 70s, Mr. Flay remembers a determined father who prioritised animals and spoke out urgently with the need to protect Australia's fauna. So just a little bit of background as to who David Flay was. He made headlines by being the first person to successfully breed platypuses in captivity, which was a pretty big thing. So yeah, much so huge. that it made the news during 1945. So, you know, there were slightly more sort of uh, well-publicized things happening at that point. You know, I can't think of anything that was happening here. Yeah, it was a, very it was boring a, slow, it was a yeah. slow news year, that one. <laughs> Not really much to do, yeah. really. Yeah. No, yeah. Uh, <laughs> so his son said uh, he'd been collecting birds and reptiles since he was a child, probably seven or eight years of age. He lived in Ballarat, which he had his own menagerie in his house. And his fascination with fauna became a career. And in 1944, the naturalist made headlines as the first person to successfully breed platypuses in captivity during his tenure as the director of Hillsville Sanctuary, which is still there today and is one of Australia's best collections of, of native wildlife and still houses platypuses uh, mm. as well, if I'm, if I'm not mistaken. He said it, this was world news right in the middle of World War II, which was a pretty oh, big thing. Oh, yeah. I know. That, that's, you wouldn't have known if I hadn't have said. No, no, no. So he was also, and you're probably both very familiar with this particular bit of footage, of the last thylacine alive at Hobart Zoo. Benjamin, yeah. the last thylacine. Well, do you know that somebody got bitten, the photographer got bitten by Benjamin? Yes, I didn't know that. This is the photographer. He is the, uh, okay. he is the person uh -huh. who got bitten. And I never knew this up until this point. Uh, until I didn't know that someone was bitten. He turned into a thylacine, I think. <laughs> well, <laughs> so a thylacine man, yeah. Yeah. So some of the best-known video and photographs of thylacine shared globally come from uh, when he, as a young naturalist, visited Hobart Zoo in 1933. Uh, he had the opportunity to visit the cage of Benjamin, the world's last known surviving thylacine. He recorded six photographs, film footage, and showed a, remar uh, showed a remarkable creature in a sad environment. And let's face it, it's a cage. It's, it's a horrible it's a cage square, a concrete, concrete floor, cage. It? Yeah. Horrible. 
In the footage, Benjamin yawns, paces, lays and stands in a completely bare enclosure with a cracked concrete floor. He wrote in an article that Benjamin, the thylacine, was starving. He didn't actually say it was starving literally, but he said it had uh, not a suitable diet. He longed to get this particular one uh, to mainland Australia through to Hillsville Sanctuary uh, so he could feed it on a proper diet. The thylacine remained at Hobart Zoo until, unfortunately, its death in 1936. And although the naturalist was unable to relocate Benjamin, he left with a permanent reminder of his encounter. He said that he was honoured to have been bitten on the backside by this noble creature. And to be honest, I kind of would be as well if, you know, it, you, you'd basically be the only person to be able to say that you've got a scar from a... I, I think we owe, them a, we owe them a backside bite. Yeah, yeah. So this then led to his quite big hunt, basically. Almost a decade after Benjamin's death, Tasmanian newspapers reported the imminent arrival of a party of tiger hunters led by Dr. Flay, who hoped to find a pair of thylacines. If captured, the animals would have been taken to Hillsville Sanctuary in an attempt to captive breed the vanishing species. The family camped in the silent southwest in the Jane River country, as described by Dr. Flay. Jagged mountains reared with their bare stony tops, awe-inspiring grandeur, uh, where the rivers so often in flood rush through rocky, myrtle-grown gorges far away from the few tracks. Progress was limited to a painful struggle through clinging mazes of horizontal scrub that uh, made their progress very, very hard. He believed that the area was going to be the last stronghold for the uh, thylacine. And he told of accounts from local bushmen who had said they'd seen thylacines there just six years earlier. Stockades with sheep and poultry inside were used to try and lure uh, thylacines to the area where cage traps were set to humanely capture the marsupials without injury. While a breeding pair was not found, Mr. Flay recalls there was trace evidence. The thylacines were still in the area. He got footprints, droppings, and that was most important, hair on a trap, he said. Uh, I seem to remember that they even heard them call quite an unusual call. His reportings of the expedition speaks of that moment with wonder. That night, we sat before the fire. There came from an adjacent hillside a most extraordinary cry, the naturalist wrote. It suggested that the brief, sharp creak of a door, quite unlike the cry of a mammal or bird I'd ever heard. But here at last, it seemed that they were listening to the cry of an animal that, in our estimation, was almost a phantom. So essentially, after the unsuccessful search, they were bitterly disappointed, feeling uh, compounded by a 10-year effort to alert the Tasmanian authorities to the concerns about thylacines. And in June 1934, Dr. Flay wrote to the wildlife advocate and grandson of the former premier, William Crowther, asking for his assistance to urge authorities to act and prevent this extinction. It appears that the letter did not spur action, that serious effort once again, persuaded by uh, Dr. Flay, came many years too late. In 1953, Dr. Flay began to believe that thylacine had gone forever, and they were declared extinct in 1986. So it goes on to basically talk about his son, who's now living in Portugal, but he has basically dedicated his life to animals. And it's, it's really sad that this could have been that moment. This could have been that uh, if they'd have managed to capture two animals, they could have, you know, prevented that extinction. This could have been mm -hmm. in an alternate universe, we're talking about where they're reintroducing thylacines back into the wild because their numbers are amazing, thanks to Dr. Flay. Unfortunately, far too many people don't listen to those who know what they're talking about until it's too late. And then uh, it's all too easy to, to come back and say, oh, yeah, well, you know, 
But yeah, quite sad, especially for such an iconic animal as the thymus. Mm, Yeah. Yeah. Right. Well, Aaron, what have you got? (laughs) Uh, Anywhere near as depressing as that? No, no. It's it's not good news. It's not bad news. It's just news that just happens to be wildly interesting, I think. So yeah, I just, I I can't explain it any other way other than really quite fascinating. Um, Because this week I figured I'd boldly go where so few of our episodes go. I've decided to venture to the absolute opposite of where I am most comfortable, from Poseidon's murky depths to Zeus's lofty heights. And no, I'm not talking about mountains where eagles soar. I am in fact taking a first step into a much larger world, space, the final frontier. Just out of interest, guys. Right, Jim. <laughs> well, I have I heard can, of space before. I can if hear, I can hear oh, so many people... <laughs> Like so many fans screaming, but I mix those two lines together. But screw them. <laughs> anyway, what do you guys know about black holes? Um, everything. Well, yeah. I've, I'm going to leave it to you though to to, to talk about it. Okay, okay. You know. <laughs> it's not somewhere you want to go. You know. <laughs> well, it's pretty so you, dense. Pretty yeah, dense. You know. You know. Uh, you know. You actually know less than I did, which is kind of reassuring. I know I less than you did. How do you know I know less than you did? Well, you've said less than what I said <laughs> to myself going into this. <laughs> Fair enough. Um, so yeah, my article is uh, Black Hole Spews Out Material Years After Shredding Star. Uh, and this comes from Science Daily and was published on October 12th this year. So it, obviously it's new news. Um, is, this, uh, is this a black hole basically throwing up? Is he yeah. a bad star? <laughs> Interesting it's like a, theory. It's like a cat. <laughs> and it makes the yowling noises it doesn't it? <laughs> 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 yep. <laughs> this article was actually brought to my attention by my wonderful better half so um much as gracias in october of 2018 a black hole was witnessed consuming the star quite literally going full galactus and tearing this thing to shreds in the process it had moved too closely to the gravity well of the swirling moor of infinity in a galaxy far, far away, about 665 million light years to be more specific. This was not a surprise to the researchers observing the event, nor would it surprise most people who are at least a little bit interested in black holes, but I'm assuming it does surprise you guys a little bit, maybe? Wait, hold on. I I just want to point something out. You said this article was neither good news nor bad news, but if a, a black hole ate an entire star and presumably its entire solar system. Uh, that's quite bad news for that. Yeah, it's a bad system. day, that. It's, if, it's bad if any news of the, for that system. That's, yeah, bad. that's extinction beyond anything that we've ever experienced. I'm not sure if that's like, should humanity be proud that we've we've not caused extinction on that le- level? We've not quite, or, or is that something oh, that the governments of the world are strive for now? Give us, give us enough time and enough conservative governments, I'm sure, it will, I'm sure it's coming. <laughs> This new black hole will be good for jobs and um... <laughs> to, st- to stop to stop them coming across our border. We've decided to insert a black a hole. Black hole in the English office. Channel. Yeah. Brexit yeah. wasn't enough. We need a black hole. <laughs> we'll take back our sovereignty of a black hole. Over take the... our back our solar system. Yeah. <laughs> well, take like... back our matter. It's not really shocking to find that a star has been destroyed and swallowed by a black hole, but 
The shock came actually three years later this year when that same black hole, which was on a strict Weight Watchers diet of fasting post-star consumption, lit the sky up once more. So after the very large array in New Mexico suggested that the black hole had woken up, the team of researchers went about revisiting tidal disruption events, which is basically when encroaching stars get spaghettified by black holes. And they were caught off guard by the spectacle because no one has until this event witnessed anything similar before. They actually had to get special permissions known as director's discretionary time for multiple telescopes around the world because what they'd found could not wait for like the normal cycles of telescope proposals to be carried out in order for them to observe it. But Yvette Sendis, hopefully I've pronounced your name correctly, she's a research associate at the Centre for Astrophysics at Harvard and Smithsonian, and her team have concluded that the black hole is regurgitating the star, ejecting the material at the speed of half that of light. So it's coming oh, up pretty fast. It's like projectile that's... vomiting. Yeah, that's Exorcist bad. style. <laughs> is that is your cuckoo clock announcing it's black hole time yeah it, it thoroughly threw me off what i was saying as well <laughs> um though they do not yet understand why the cosmic vomit has taken so long to be brought back up the team collected observations in multiple wavelengths of light making use of the very large array uh, which as i say is in new mexico the alma in chile meerkat in south africa the telescope compact array in australia and the chandra x-ray observatory and neil Guerrero's swift observatory both of which are in space but radio observations of the tde proved the most interesting teams have been using radio telescopes for, for more than a decade to study tdes the tidal disruption events and have discovered that as black holes gorge themselves on star matter they often shine in radio waves spewing out material as they consume. This particular black hole had been dormant for three years leading up to this event, only now lighting up radio wave observations as it yaks up its last dinner. The results of this have been described in the Astrophysical Journal, if anyone's interested, and it may lead to further understanding of black hole existence, particularly their feeding habits. And I, for one, think this is one of the most fascinating uh, articles. I might not have interpreted it well to you all but it was one of the most fascinating articles that i've had the privilege of reading whilst being on this podcast delving into space and black holes and stars being ripped alive from their existence eaten and and then three years later vomited back up i think it's our first proper space one i think we've gone with isn't it i think so Mm. i think so i was wondering if i did one in the early days but i can't remember well, I mean, you know what it's like. You're Very out, the, you know. You're out. You're eating planets. You just your your accretion disk is bigger than your belly, and you know you just after a while you just you have to bring them back up. <laughs> well, my thought on it is, uh, whichever aliens are on the opposite side that are having planets thrown at them are going, no, no, you take them back. You take them back, whatever universe that is, and just pushing them back through. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> no one, no adventure of uh, thought on that one. <laughs> well, there you go, stunned. <laughs> right, well, let's move on from space and how it's the final frontier. And we haven't made anywhere near as many Star Wars, Star Trek references and or jokes Good. as we could have. No. There's there's references Good. at the start. Star Wars, Star Trek, Marvel. Damn it, Jim. I'm a podcaster, not a doctor. No, wait, I'm a doctor, not a podcaster. 
Oh, God. <laughs> right, well, let's, let's head back to Earth and um, see what Drew has for us as his creature feature. <laughs> Terrible. <laughs> it's the creature feature. Right, well, we're into this week's creature feature, and Drew has got a very early mammal for us. What have you got, Drew? So this feature is likely to be relatively short. I just want to prepare people. Uh, but I'm going to be padding out with um, a hefty build-up, hefty bit of exposition. So we're going all the way back to the Triassic here. Uh, Gareth may be confused, or, and Aaron may be confused here. Uh, but so back very, in the, very confused. Back in the Triassic, two groups of animals shed their reptilian skins and became something a little bit different. This happened gradually, of course. This didn't happen overnight. Both were born on the supercontinent of Pangaea, and like Pangaea, they ultimately went their separate ways. Though the threads of their destinies, whilst different, remained intertwined. One of them was destined for greatness, for grandeur, the right to rule, a mandate of, uh, by heaven, if you will. Their bodies grew into enormous sizes, and they spread across the splitting land masses as conquerors. And for 160 million years, give or take, they reigned uncontested on land. And these were the dinosaurs, of course. And for all this time, the other group was destined to hide in the shadows, to remain small, come out at night, and bide their time. And this group is our own, mammals. However, something happened that no creature at the time expected, because 65 to 66 million years ago, no one really studied the sciences. The forces of the universe were very unhappy with the dinosaurs. We still don't know why, or who or what they are, or if such a thing exists, but they must have taken significant insult for the enraged universe decided to hurl a massive rock at planet Earth, at Mexico in particular, because that's where the most offensive dinosaurs were, probably. <laughs> Such was the fury of the impact that the dinosaurs barely had time to sign out and thank each other for such a wonderful 160 million years. And in the aftermath, life on Earth forever changed. With the dinosaurs all but gone, leaving behind a very bitter subgroup we now know as birds, a small number of small furry mammals came out of hiding, wondering what the bloody hell all this ruckus is about. What they saw was dust clouds and engulfing flames and rocks crashing from the sky and soot and ash and the end of days. But life, as persistently and encouragingly optimistic as it is, stared the literal apocalyptic hellscape dead in the eye and uttered, Not today. <laughs> Plants regrew. What is that? What is that from? Not today. <laughs> yeah. That's from Game of Thrones. <laughs> what do we say to the god of death not today i honestly thought you were going to say life found a way then but fair yeah. enough no not today not no no <laughs> jeff goldman references today not today uh so plants regrew encouraged by invertebrates who pollinated and recycled and who as we all know are the real modest rulers of the planet really uh, I was say they just got on with the work the entire time <laughs> basically showing off yeah uh and small amphibians reptiles birds and mammals scraped a living out from this new beginning uh, it's in the later stage of this new dawn that we find ourselves about 50 million years ago-ish uh, in the Eocene. Uh, the continental formation of the planet in the Eocene isn't too dissimilar to what it is today. Europe is very broken up geographically, not in the political sense. Uh, we're still apparently waiting for that to happen after the huge success of Brexit. Uh, but much of Europe and North Africa and West Asia is underwater during the Eocene. Australia is breaking away from Antarctica and India is about to George Michael itself into Asia. <laughs> Honestly, if, 
like all the references of uh, something hurtling itself into something else I could have made or joke about. I think that George Michael crashing his car into Snappy Snaps was probably one of the safest. Um, but anyway, was it was India on cocaine at this point? <laughs> so, I think it, I mean, it, it traveled quite far over over pretty quickly. So uh, I think I think there must have been drugs involved. Wow. Uh, yeah. Yeah, and it's trying to bring Madagascar along for the ride as well. <laughs> uh, but anyway, so climate-wise, at uh, this period, it's very, very sweaty. Um, this is probably the warmest the world has been since the Triassic. Uh, there was little ice at the poles, and the difference in temperature between the poles and the equator was less than it is today. And for any climate change deniers, who are very likely not listening to this anyway, this changing temperature and climate happened over a period of a few million years rather than between you now and your grandparents. Uh, with those warm temperatures, Europe, which is where we are looking for our creature featured, uh, is covered in forest, some temperate, some subtropical, uh, and it's in amongst the ferns and the understory in what is now Germany, where we find a bizarre little creature sniffing the ground with a long and peculiar proboscis. Uh, this creature is, of course, the subject of this feature. So that's the build-up. So... Whoa. What is what is this strange creature? It's about 80 to 90 centimetres long, uh, more than half of that length being the tail, with small forelegs and large hind legs. Its anatomy is similar to, say, a jaboa or a kangaroo rat, but with a long mobile snout like that of an elephant shrew or a bandicoot. Uh, if anyone is familiar with the old Walking with Beasts TV programme, uh, you'll probably remember this charismatic small creature as it had top billing in the first episode. And I'd, I just want to shout out to Walking With Beasts as uh, my, me and my partner watched that pretty much the, before we uh, recorded this episode. But the creature's name is Leptictidium, which is a great word. Uh, the name itself, as you do you guys know what the name means? Um, no. no <laughs> I was, I I was racking my brain then, but no. No, for you, Aaron, as well. Sorry. No, no, sorry. I, I, I don't know. Yeah, uh, it means graceful weasel. Love it. Graceful weasel. Graceful, uh, graceful weasel. Looks graceful nothing weasel. like a weasel. No, it's it doesn't look anything like a weasel, and it's not related to weasels either. It's not a mustelid uh, or a descendant of uh, an ancestor of them. Um, this is a it's a primitive mammal. Its closest living relatives, uh, though by no means close, but you know closest to what we have today. Um, are elephants and hyrax and elephant trees. Uh, however, mm. uh, that's at least no. we think it's been all over the place at the taxonomy of uh, of this this little guy. But yeah, however, despite being primitive in its genealogy, it's surprisingly specialised uh, with the long, powerful hind legs and a long tail for agile locomotion. And the genus Leptictidium is very widespread and successful across Europe uh, at this point and for a while afterwards as well. Uh, not to give any way to any spoilers. Uh, there are eight species of Leptoptidium, three of which were found in a disused quarry in Germany called the Messel Pit. But more on that later. So I'm going to just quickly ask you guys a question. How mm. much do you both already know about Leptoptidium? Uh, not enough. Not no, enough. Mine, mine is basically what I know from uh, Walking with Beasts. As mm -hmm. I think I, I pointed out when it came to when we talked to Paige, uh, my knowledge of the eocene and the paleogene is very limited yeah so there are some inaccuracies with walking with beasts and i mean you know it's it was a fair few years ago now 
Uh, so that's going to mm. happen. And some of the other species featured in the Leptidium, Leptidium episode aren't wholly accurate anymore. The, um, the Gastornis was yeah. portrayed as a, a meat eater. Yes, uh, I've got that. I've got it in here. But yeah, it's uh, it was actually a, a herbivore. They now think. Uh, although, again, that did go back and forward for a while. But yeah, they now think it was mm. a herbivore. But from what I can gather, Leptidium's portrayal is actually reasonable. It seems seems all pretty good. There isn't actually a huge amount out there about this creature, by the way, which is why this feature in itself is relatively short. But I mean, watch that episode and you'll see why I picked it because I mean, it's it's great. What an amazing little beast! But anyway, so it was omnivorous. Uh, it preferred to eat invertebrates, although now we know that mammals can't digest them. Uh, so, <laughs> uh, well, I found that after I wrote this down. So I'd, I'd, that's probably out the window now. Uh, but it did also eat small vertebrates as well. Uh, but plant matter has been found in the stomachs of their fossils too, as well as sand. But and they think that the sand and it could well be the plant matter as well. Might it might not have actually eaten it? It might just be the fact that it's it's just within the fossil. So they're not one hundred percent sure. Uh, but it likely uses long mobile nose, basically just to sniff out food, particularly invertebrates, if it could even digest them, which we don't know anymore. The <laughs> the large hind legs would have given it a bipedal stance. However, there is some debate as to whether it ran or hopped or both. So the confusion lies with the fact that there are very few bipedal mammals today or ever uh, in which to compare Leptitidium to. There's basically us, kangaroos, pangolins, which um, can walk around bipedally, and Leptitidium. That's pretty much it. That's, that's the bipedal ma- uh, bipedal mammals. And, and if I we wouldn't were... even count kangaroos because they... They, yeah, they do like a pen, pentagonal stance. Oh yeah, sorry, because they're tail. on the because they're on the tail. Yeah, that's true. Yeah. But yeah, I mean, if we take kangaroos as an example in terms of locomotion, they obviously move almost exclusively by hopping. Uh, but studies into Leptidium's leg articulation suggest that they're likely too weak to support the shock of repeated jumps, even though the long legs and the long feet suggest that this animal was adapted for jumping. So what seems more likely is that it had a locomotion similar to modern elephant shrews, which usually move around on four legs, but will switch to jumping on two for some high-octane spring-loaded bouncing to escape from a predator. So that's possibly one thing that the Walking with Beasts um, episode didn't get completely accurate, because it pretty much only walked around, or only jumped around, whereas likely the actual animal uh, used its front limbs as well. Uh, but as for predators, our Mesalpit leptictidium likely had a few to contend with. As in fact, a lot of animals have been found in the Mesalpit quarry. So many of the larger predators at this time were birds, clinging onto their ancestors' reign. But whilst the predatory bird featured in the Walking with Beast episode, as we just mentioned, Gastornis was likely not actually a predator, uh, there were other birds that were, and some were flighted and some were flightless. So uh, I'm just going to take a, uh, a little dive into the, the Mesal formation, uh, and I'm going to name some other animals that shared our Leptitidium's habitat to you both and we'll see if you can work out what they actually are uh i don't know if you're already pretty clued up on okay. this or not nope. uh so the first one you might be able to work them out just by the name aaron so the first one is europa lima what might that be oh uh, lima from europe oh he's got it oh, oh i snatched, <laughs> snatched that one out from the uh claws of defeat and he storms <laughs> into the lead straight in there. the next one is paleo chiropteryx who's that for either of you whoever wants to that's a, that's a early uh, bat yep it's a, it's a bat it's an early bat yep oh, you, you've got to beat him at his own game Aaron. you've got to jump in before him with that like the <laughs> europa lena 
The next one is Propaleotherium. Small yes. horse? Small horse, yeah. The tiny, tiny little horse. Horses um, in their beginning. Two, um, one. Horses when they were cute and actually worth being around. Controversial. Wow. That is a that was a hot. <laughs> oh, come <take>. on. <laughs> Who wouldn't want a small cat-sized horse as opposed oh, to those yeah. those huge things that can stamp you to the ground? No, I'd, I'd rather I'd rather have like a, a Shire or something. <laughs> well, Mini this, Shire. This was, this was far from a Shire. Um, <laughs> uh, next one is oh, I didn't actually check the pronunciation of this one, but I'm going to assume it's Les Mis Odon. Because that's how it's spelled. <laughs> it's it's, less, less it's an overly dramatic animal, <laughs> but it is spelled Lemes Odon. Did it dream is a dream? It, it, yep. Musical tooth. Yes, musical tooth. Oh, brilliant! <laughs> I don't. I didn't. I to check what that what that meant. I probably should have done that. What um, what, what was it? It's a small hyena dont. Ah. So hyena dons famously are not hyenas uh, or related to them, but. They're carnivores, basically. They're they're an extinct got, group of carnivores. They've got carnivores. teeth that are similar to hyenas. I think that's where they get the names so still, from. Still 2-1. Yeah. Next one. I'm keeping school. Next one is uh, Euro Tamandua. Uh, it's a European a Tamandua from Tamandua. Europe. <laughs> I got there first. That's, that's one point for me. It's too old. No, no points for either of you. You're wrong. It's actually a pangolin. Yeah, it's a pangolin. It's actually a pangolin. It's not an anteater. It's a, so it's a scaleless anteater-like pangolin. But yeah, it's not actually an anteater, uh, despite the name. Gareth's now free one. The <laughs> um, how about Paleotis? Oh, um, oh. prehistoric kawaii. No, <laughs> I'm not prehistoric. Otis. I'm going to say prehistoric rabbit. No, or, it's not a mammal. Um, it's not a mammal. Oh, oh, bird. Um, owl. Owl. It's not the owl. There, there is a, there is an owl. It's uh, Otis Lakotis. Yeah, which is no longer considered that anymore because it's they changed the name, didn't they? No, I, I'm. Yeah, so it's, but it's a bird. Yeah, so it's a, it's a relative of ostriches, um, and it was likely a predatory bird. So oh. it, it was probably what we may have seen Gastornis as, basically what the the real version of Gastornis as to what we predatory saw. Predatory ostrich, a predatory <laughs> sort of ostrich. Yeah, and there's a couple. There's three more. Uh, next one is Massilaraptor. Um, some yeah. thief, Massilaraptor. Yeah, Messel thief. Yeah, that's basically what it means. I think uh, Massa was the Latin name for Messel, where it was found. But what what do you reckon it is? My thought would probably be a bird of prey, but it's probably not. I'm guessing. No, it is a bird of prey. So it's a falconiform, yeah. um, and it's got very long legs. So it's a long legged falcon like bird. Secretary bird looking thing. Um, Asiata sucus. Uh, Asian crocodile of some kind. It's basically a big crocodile. Yep. And the last one. Second point. The last one is Titanomeria gigantea. Oh, that's oh, a giant. The, the giant, giant ant thing. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I love. The, I love the uh, the giant ant. That's one of the few creatures that I do know from that. Yeah. That thing. We, we, I think all three of us know that from our dark days on Ark, uh, which were truly <laughs> the, the dark. I completely forgot about that. Days. But yeah. Um, so yeah, those are the sort of species that Leptotidium was was hanging around with. There are obviously a lot more because uh, the Messel pit has has uh, engulfed or actually spat out a little bit like that black hole uh, in a lot of uh, fossils. But not only were there crocodiles, angry birds, small carnivorous mammals, and giant ants to contend with, the very environment was also out to get our little Leptotidiums. Uh, so the area around the Messel Pit is believed to have been geologically and tectonically active, forming volcanic lakes, 
and occasionally subsurface shifts possibly released large concentrations of carbon dioxide and hydrogen sulfide, among others, uh, into the lakes and spilled out into the surrounding areas. So basically a big poisonous death cloud. And this theory, nice. if true, could explain why so many fossils have been found in this area, because all of the animals were gassed to death and just basically <laughs> ended up uh, sinking to the bottom of the lake. And upon that lovely image, uh, we approach the end of this feature. Can I just um, jump onto your death assemblage thing? Mm. There has been modern precedent for this. I believe it was in yes. like 1980s or 1990s, uh, Lake Nyasa in, I don't know where in Africa, somewhere like Kenya or something like that, went off. Um, the same sort of thing, massive mm -hmm. carbon dioxide, and basically went down the mountainside and killed all the villages and, and everyone whilst they slept, basically. Cows, Perfect. people, sheep, birds, everything, you know. And the whole area was sort of ghostly quiet for days. Was that before the was it the nineteen late nineteen seventies when they said no no more biological weapons, please? Was that before or after <laughs> that? I definitely think it was like I think it was like early nineties or late eighties. Oh, so it was like... it was I think it might have been after. So the oh, yeah. the, the planet committed a, an illegal act. Wow. <laughs> Well, yes. I hope they went and arrested the volcano. I hope so. Um, <laughs> but yes. Uh, so Leptictidium itself and its lineage continued to be a bouncy boy eating bugs and being an irritating chase for anything wanting to catch an eater, I'm sure, for many more millions of years until around 35 million years ago, which is when the temperature dropped and the Eocene moved into the Oligocene. Oligocene, as I should say, actually, shouldn't I? Oligocene, uh, yeah. Oligocene, yeah. I've heard people say Oligocene and Oligocene, and I think Kenneth, I think it's like I think our, our God Kenneth, our second yeah. God, our demigod uh -huh. down from David Attenborough, uh, Kenneth Branagh pronounced it Oligocene, so we'll we'll stick with that. But yes, so there the forest thinned out uh, and the plains took over as the world became colder. Uh, it's theorized that Leptictidium was a forest specialist and could not adapt quickly enough to the open plains. Uh, ending the lineage of our Auskazeichnet Hutspitzmaus, uh, which is German for bouncy shrew, I think. I, I did a Google Translate, uh, but Spitzmaus does mean shrew, and it translates uh, into English as sharp mouse, which is great. Sharp mouse. Yeah, I could do a whole episode on German animal names because I do love just, them. They're, they're so brilliant good. names. They're so good. Uh, but Flutter I could <laughs> Flutermouse, yeah. Um, but I digress. Uh, I feel. It's a shame we don't have the leptitics anymore because whilst we may call them primitive, they did survive the actual ap apocalyptic meteor strike that killed the non-avian dinosaurs, relatively unchanged as well. Uh, also killed the pterosaurs, the marine reptiles, and most life on Earth. Uh, and it's because of that primitivity, if that is even a word, uh, that they managed to survive such calamity. Uh, if it weren't for the endurance of the little big-nosed bounce shrew and early, other early mammals, we wouldn't really be here today to begin the next uh, apocalypse all by ourselves. So thank you, early mammals. See what you've wrought. Uh, but yeah, I would I would encourage anyone. Was it who worth hasn't, it? <laughs> was it worth it? I would encourage anyone who hasn't already seen the first episode of Walking with Beasts to go watch it. It's um and then it's, the rest of them. Yeah, and then the rest of them. It's it's easy enough to find, and uh, I think you'll immediately fall in love with uh, little bouncy leptictidium uh, as I did. But there we go. Hmm. I think I've still got my copy of Walking with Beasts and Walking with Dinosaurs as like a double set. On oh, yeah. VHS somewhere. Have you got anything to play it on? Nope. <laughs> it's just there. <laughs> just look at just it. It's there. <laughs> Go, ah, I remember that episode yeah. that I can't watch. <laughs> yeah. 
I think I've got it on DVD somewhere, but even then I don't know where that is. <laughs> oh, that yeah. was good. Right, well, let's bounce yeah, on good... from... Oh, good. Sorry, I was just going to say that was a good creature feature. I enjoyed that one. Oh, good. Thank you. Like I said, there isn't oh. there isn't that much out there about them, which is a shame, but I've, I've padded it out. No, it's good. You did miss one animal off there. It was Amblyocetus. Yeah, well, I did miss off quite a few of them, but I, I did that because I thought you both would know exactly what that is. Yeah. Yeah. Early walking whale boy. Yeah. I've always I've always liked the uh, early whale things. The sort of we can't quite make our mind up what we're doing yet. Yeah. Yeah. Am yeah. I a whale? Am I an otter? <laughs> am I a crocodile? What's going on? <laughs> Who knows? I don't know what I am, so well, exactly. Right. Well let's uh let's jump out of the uh, the pit and uh head over to our mailbag. Bing, you've got mail. Ooh, it's an email. Right, well, we're into this week's uh, emails and messages. Uh, we're going to start off with uh, a message that we got a while ago. Drew, what is the message that we have? Yeah, so the message that we got was, uh, why do some animals, in particular stick insects, smell like weed? Mm. Mm. Right, well, <laughs> without trying to be taken down for sort of illegal activities or anything, when it comes to stick insects... They have got a variety of different smells. Um, I think it's kind of subjective. I mean, I, I I know what I know what they're talking about when it comes to that. It's quite a pungent smell, mm. uh, and the species is probably Uracantha calcarata, which is the um, the New Guinea spiny stick insect, which is a really commonly kept species. Um, but they're not alone in being able to release smells. It's basically a deterrent. It's sort of a a last ditch thing to keep themselves from being eaten. Uh, or to put an animal off before they even get close to trying to eat them. So naturally in the wild, those guys would be high up in the canopy and you'd probably never see them in the forests of New Guinea. So your chances of spotting them, you know, are, are very, very minor unless it's traipsing around the, the top of the canopy somehow in the middle of the night. Um, you've not got much chance of spotting them. The males have got massive spurs on the back of their legs. I know both of you have seen them before, which if they clamp down on you is quite painful. They've got good bit of force to them they're like about the size of a like a cat's claw i suppose to uh, to put it in perspective so if that gets mm. stuck into you you're going to know about it but yeah a lot of them prefer to not even get to that point because that means they've got to be in physical contact with whatever's trying to attack them by using a, a nasty smelling secretion they can hopefully get the animal to go away the other there's some other ones of note that are certainly worth uh talking about other species, um, the American walking stick or two-line stick, I think it's called, two-stripe stick insect or walking stick, uh, which is Anasomorphia bupstroides, and to a lesser extent, the pink-winged stick insect, which is another very common kept species, Cyploidea uh, cyplius, uh, both can release nasty-smelling uh, chemicals. The, um, the two-line stick insect can actually fling chemicals a nasty smelling chemical so much that it can actually blind you. It's uh, pretty nasty stuff. Nice. It's their way of being able to, you know, just get an opponent to, to leave them alone effectively. A lot of the time, these well, animals... Well, do it. Well, yeah. <laughs> a lot of the time, these animals use this to, um, but as a byproduct of eating different plants. So a lot of insects in the wild will eat plants that are toxic and they'll funnel all of those toxins through themselves and then store them up and then use them as some sort of horrible weapon to use on predators later. So uh, it's it's a good defense, but I don't think they're setting out to smell like uh, like weed necessarily. Mm. Otherwise, they, they might find themselves getting 
don't know. The DEA come in for them. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Drug busts on stick insect keepers. I better watch out. So, <laughs> yeah. But yeah, that is pretty much the uh, the main reason for it is a uh, defense. It's not uh, to smell nice. It's to basically tell you to go away without having to get involved in a fight. To be oh. honest, that's that's the effect that that smell has anyway. It's like, <laughs> I never thought it was that bad, to be honest. Um, that's probably because oh. I've got a really bad sense of smell, but... Yeah, it never bothered me it's that much. True, I forgot, but you can't smell anything. I can smell some <laughs> things, just not everything. The number of times I farted in your uh, <laughs> in your bug room, and you've See, never noticed. There you go. That's that's enough to kill any insect. <laughs> anyway, shall anyway. we move on to a listener email that we've been sent? Uh, Aaron, what have we got? Sure. Yeah. So last week, you might remember if your if your short term memory is good, you'll remember <laughs> that we had a. Uh, that we had uh, we had an email from Brianne, one of our listeners, who wanted to know more about uh, SeaWorld. And we uh-huh. gave her a very, a very brief rundown of, of all the good in the world that, or some of the good in the world that SeaWorld uh, gets up to. She sent in a lovely email response. It says, hi, Erin and team. Thank you very much for taking the time to field this question. You've certainly educated me and given me a much better perspective on the topic As you pointed out, unfortunately, yes, the media is often focused on sensationalism. Here in the US, the bloodier an orca attack, the better it sells. So you hear nothing positive about SeaWorld. But I will do my bit to bring up their conservation measures now whenever I have the opportunity. Fantastic episode as always. I agree the whale shark is a stunning creature. Keep up the good work. Thank you, Brie. Thank you very much, uh, Brianne, for for writing in Mm. a response. I'm glad that you enjoyed the uh the answer to your question and again if you've got more questions along those lines that you'd like to know a little bit more about feel free to send them in to us uh, yeah, yeah do feel free. thank you for such a fantastic question and thanks for getting in contact mm. we did definitely mull over the uh the sea world uh, response for quite a while to make sure that we uh we do well, that you did it justice essentially aaron which i think yeah. you did yeah yeah, yeah. I, I think so it was a good question to answer wasn't it mm-hmm Right, well, we now turn to your listener questions that we put out. Uh, And this week's listener question uh, that we asked you, what's your best experience with whales, sharks, or dolphins? Or all three, if you're lucky enough, I suppose, which could get rather messy, I think, maybe. But uh, we have the following responses. uh, I've been looking forward to this. It came uh, from Twitter and from Facebook this week. So we've got on Twitter, uh, we've got Steve Natureman. Uh, He's just simply put, orcas in Scotland. So I'm assuming he Very saw nice. some orcas whilst in Scotland. Nice. Um, nice. Yeah. On Glasgow on a night out. <laughs> yep. Must have been. I mean, we have no further context, so we just have to assume that that's exactly what he meant. Well, he's really lucky because mm. they are currently suffering from not being able to breed very well up there. So, yeah, yeah. very lucky. Do they, uh, out of interest, Aaron, do they have, because uh, you know more about them than I do, do they have transient pods up there as well as home pods, whatever they're called? Uh, I will Google ones? that uh, now because I am under the impression that they're resident orcas. Resident, uh, that's the word. I don't think they're transient. Give me a second. Um, well, whilst you do that, I will read out our next entry that we had. So we actually have one from Jess who has uh, messaged in as well. Yep. Uh, not strictly what you asked, but I, I do actually like this one. Um, I, I remember her telling us uh, about this a while ago. Yeah, um, I wasn't there for you- this one. No, I'd, I'd have been very jealous. Yeah, Not strictly what you asked, but 
but I was wildlife watching at Land's End in Cornwall, and the public were thrilled to see wild dolphins when actually it was a huge school of bluefin tuna hunting. Yeah, which that's that's pretty awesome. I mean, those yeah, are big fish. Yeah, yeah. There's that part of really me that would part that of me that would want to jump in the water cool. and try and catch one, but uh... I think that's <laughs> that's cooler than dolphins. Yeah, I, I would yeah, say yeah. Um, one of the largest fish, and I think they're endangered. I yeah, they're, they're I, I don't think they've so, been yeah. in, they've been seen around Cornwall for quite a long time until relatively recently, where I think either the areas have now got more protections or there are more areas that are now protected, and so tuna are, are turning up uh, in in increased numbers, which is great. That's Brilliant, fantastic yeah. to see. Before something... you read the next one out, Gareth, mm-hmm. I've just learned something. I've just done some schooling. Whoa. So it depends where, where if it was Steve Natureman that sent in that one about the orcas, right? Yes. Steve, if you could give us some context as to where you are, it might even actually make you luckier than I thought you were originally, because I only knew that there was a resident population uh, around the West Coast. However, in other, other areas of the coastline in Scotland... Uh, they do see a transient pod visiting, seasonal visitors, um, particularly to Shetland and Orkney Islands. So depending on where you were, west or east coast and or, or north coast indeed, you would have seen a different pod. So yeah, fantastically hey. lucky. Mm-hmm. Oh, very cool. Really cool, because it's led me to learning something new about orcas, which is always cool. Yeah. Uh, and our final one that we've got um, comes from uh, Scott Puddingham. And he, and he's put uh, that he's seen great white sharks whilst uh, diving off the uh, the coast of uh, the Eastern Cape. So a little bit like seeing uh, orcas in uh, Scotland. Very brief, but at least we know where they were. So hmm. yeah, when it comes to um, to seeing sharks and and orcas and dolphins, I, I got to admit sharks are far more interesting to see in my mind than a lot of others. And thinking back on it now, I've had far more encounters with sharks than I have with whales or dolphins. For me personally, it I couldn't say if I'd prefer to see a shark or a dolphin or a, a whale or a tuna or anything else because for me it depends on where I am mm. and what behavior is being displayed. When I was out on the boat between Barcelona and La Palma, Mallorca, doing the cetacean census in, the holy grail of cetacean studies and surveys in that area is the sperm whale because they yeah. know it's they, they have reason to believe it's there but then i don't think at the time when i was there i don't think it was a, it was like record an actual recorded site but they're pretty sure that they're there so for me like few shark species that i'm absolutely enamored with whale shark and great whites um certainly are among them and rate rather high higher than a lot of cetaceans would in my mind however if i saw a sperm whale in the mediterranean would, that would be something to write home about. Uh, yeah. Mm. What I did see in the cetacean um, survey that I was doing, other than seeing, like, I saw a small pod of, of um, I think there was seven fin whale, one of which was a calf. Uh, and it was huge. That was impressive. But there was, like, 80 striped, was it, I think it was striped dolphins, 80 striped dolphins. Could have been common dolphins. I can't, I can't remember now. But there was 80 of them. And just the sheer number of them was that was mind blowing. So, so it depends because then seeing a great white free diving with a great white or mm, a, that would or be cool. 
whale shark or watching a great white hunt you know when it comes up from underneath and yeah pop, the seal a sea lion yeah that, that'd be fantastic to see it so for me it depends on location species and behavior i don't think i could say which one. i saw once a marlin porpoise in i think it's a marlin yeah it's yeah there's there's a lot of stuff i've seen in the sea <laughs> all right poseidon <laughs> right well for this week's listener question uh we are going to pose to you a little bit less uh wet question we are asking what is your favorite mammal and why wow. i think we could end up with a good variety of different answers for this one but yeah let us know your answers you can do that by getting in contact with us either on our twitter page or our facebook page where the question will be up you can send it to us in the form of an email uh, and you can do that by sending it to the nat history cupboard at gmail.com uh, like I say our twitter handle is at nh cupboard so you can find us there you can also send it to us on spotify if you're listening to us on spotify you can put your response to our question uh in the episode uh to the side you can actually find a little drop down bit there to put your answer and we will read out what we get next week but that pretty much brings us to the end of this week's show remember if you've liked what you've heard you can leave a review on whatever podcasting service you are listening to us on uh tell a friend tell an enemy tell a tiny creature from the messel shale before it gets wiped out by a massive gas cloud pretty dark i suppose (laughs) 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 but that pretty much just uh, leaves me to say a big thank you to my co-host big thank you aaron uh, you're welcome. And we've we've discovered a termite problem in our mailbag. So we've we've now cleared it out humanely, just shuffled them off. And well, you've been doing those termites. <laughs> we uh, oh, <laughs> but we'd really appreciate some more uh, some more mail coming in hmm. now that it's fixed. <laughs> it's not a plea at all. <laughs> Aaron just wants to read things. Someone um, talk to us. <laughs> get, back in your, get back in the mailbag get back in there uh and a big thank you to you as well drew uh, you're welcome thank you professor good episode this week it's been it's been good learned about little bouncy shrew things what was it in german again uh oh hold on hoot spitz mouse but that's not actually what leptictidium is in german that's just you know that's just bouncy that was bouncy shrew and it might not be bouncy shrew in german well, anyone it in Germany good. listening, um, let us know if uh, if you've got well, how how Drew's interpretation came out and uh, whether you've got a better name to give Leptectidium, <clears throat> if I can even say it. Um, mm. uh, but that just also leaves me to say a big thank you to you at home for listening. And we will see you next time here in the Natural History Cupboard. Bye. See you then, Dank. You know, I'm something of a vomiting more myself. Blech. 